You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad and the Hot Docs series at uh, Toronto, of which the Toronto Irish Film Festival are associated, is coming up at the end of April and at the beginning of May. And there are a number of Irish documentaries that are going to be screened during that. And one is called The Silver Branch and it is based in County Clare. And the director of the the Silver Branch is Katrina Costello and I have Katrina here with me going to tell us about the backstory and uh, some of her own career and uh, we're going to learn a lot more. Katrina, welcome and thanks a million for agreeing to have a chat. Hi, Austin, how you doing? A little bit about yourself. Um, tell, tell us a little about yourself and um, where you came from and how your life has been to eventually landed you in the role of a film director. It's been an interesting journey, Austin. Um, so I grew up in the 80s in Clare, actually, farming. But um, I left, as most people did, and we were doing uh, trading room computer software, which is very, very far from filmmaking. But that's what I did for about 20 years. And um, I travelled to lots of financial capitals, including Toronto, actually, and New York and um Brazil and Australia and Asia and so forth. But what I actually used to do was um, contract for three months, six months, and then I'd travel for three months and six months periods. And during the traveling time, I used to do a lot of photography. I used to go to places of great wilderness um, into the rural communities and stay there pretty much with a hammock and a camera. It was <laughs> happy days for a long time. So um, so that, I suppose I always took photographs, I always liked the story told through photographs, and I was also very drawn to rural communities, I suppose. It was a nice juxtapose from going from city life back to the rural communities. But um, anyway, so what brought me to the filmmaking? I returned to Ireland uh, 16 years ago with my husband, and uh, to be honest, Oxford, I couldn't believe the changes in the country in the 20 years that I've been away. As um, as John Murray Irish, he says, we've educated ourselves out of the landscape, which is true. You know, so many people have changed, so many things have changed. When I left, I should have said, when I left in the 80s, we used to walk our cows up and down the village of Prosperous, and you just could not imagine that today. You know, it'd take you 30 minutes to get one block now, which is the whole size of Prosperous. It would take you 20 minutes because it's bumper to bumper cars. But literally in the 20s, it was <laughs> cows that used to walk up and down the street. So, um, so I settled back in Clare and um, took a, a major career change. Try and <laughs> so when you say you, you took a major career change, initially you didn't jump straight from the financial sector into the movie industry, or did you have to transition? Or at what point did you say, you know, this is a passion and there may be an opportunity in the future here? If both of those things are true. So uh, we settled back in Clare. Um, we were both, my husband and myself, we were both keen divers. We used to scuba dive a lot. So we actually started um, We started a course in underwater photography because there was absolutely nobody recording the underwater world of Ireland. So that was our first documentary. It was Faragina Heron for T.G. Cahar. And it was all underwater. So it was literally close to our shores looking at all the, all the beautiful underwater worlds that we have in Ireland that was never been really filmed before. So that was our kickstart, and uh, and it, it kind of grew from there, to be honest, Austin. Now, in the Burren, particularly, um, that parts of Clare, Clare, given that where it is, actually has a very diverse 
um, topography from the north of Clare to the south of Clare. So when you had a bit back down to Clare, where did you settle initially? We live in La Hinge, Austin, which is uh, a seaside resort, really. There's lots of surfing, lots of golfing, and it's also just at the foothills of the Burn. Well, the Burn is about five, uh, maybe 15 miles away. Um, so, yeah, so I used to go to the Burn a lot for walks, actually. And it's an incredible place to burn. It's, it's it's incredible on so many different levels, actually. So you've got the forts, the tombs, you know, the, some of the the wedge tombs that are there are five, six thousand years old. They're older than the pyramids of Egypt. So it's, it has all of this human element, and it also has a very mystical feel, like these like fairy-like forests, which are just like hidden in the inside the middle uh, areas of great beauty like mosses and lichens and waterfalls it's just remarkably beautiful and remarkable remarkably wild i think that's the right word it's a it's a pure wilderness it's a wild wild place but it has just so many reminiscences of um of our own human story right throughout it so katrina um, when you were here in canada i'm going to ask you did you ever get the opportunity to go up inside the arctic circle and into that type of barren the topography up there. No, I didn't. I'm afraid that was one of the places, one of my greatest regrets. Actually, I was only in Toronto in the city. I did get to see the Niagara Falls, but um, definitely did not spend enough time there. Maybe this time. Yes, yeah, some of the wilderness up there, you know, particularly where you mentioned the flora and the fauna that surrounds or that is part of the Burren and how unique it is. Likewise, you know, much of the topography and the flora and the fauna when you get north in Canada above the tree line um, is so unique and so fabulous also. But going back to the Burren, um, and your your hobby is the deep sea diver now, I understand, and he's the one that's out there with cameras. Ken is doing a program called the Deep Atlantic, and so he's out searching for whales, particularly the blue whale. He's trying to find the blue whale in Irish waters, but they're so few and far between. Um, we've had a great effect on the whale populations, <laughs> our human hunting. But anyway, that's a different story. But that's, Ken's livelihood is um, is out trapping around on the water in a little dinghy. So tell me then, why or what sparked the urge to make the Silver Branch? Well, uh, also that's about everything. Everything in the burn, I suppose, is extravagant. You know, it's it's. it's to me, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, and I'm sitting up on this mountain after having watched doc, after having watched documentaries all my life, and beautiful places about various mountains and forests. And I thought, you know, I'd love to show the world this moment, this very moment up here, sitting on this mountain in the middle of the burn, just to show how wonderful and how spectacular it is. So it was. It was difficult because I didn't want to do a factual documentary, which is what we were used to doing. So I really wanted to show something that um, showed the connection that the farmers that, that live in the borough, and I wanted to show the connection that they had to their livestock and to the land. And I wanted to evoke that connection back to the earth, you know, to experience the feeling of, of actually being in the burn because it's, it's as, uh, as Patrick says, where gentleness blossoms against the harsh. It's the world of juxtaposes. It's a magnificent place, but it's a place that has great feeling, I think. Now, you mentioned Patrick. That's tell right. Tell us about how you met Patrick, and tell us who Patrick is. Okay, uh, Patrick is Patrick McCormack. He lives with uh, Cheryl, and they have five kids, and they actually live in Father Ted's house. You know, they live in their own house, but that's where they filmed Father Ted. And when I went to 
talk to people about making a documentary in the burn. As I said, I wanted it to not just be a factual one, but more poetic and more spiritual. Everybody said, you know, you really should talk to Patrick McCormack. And and true, he is the voice of the film. He's an absolutely incredible storyteller with great poetic spirit and a great vision. And he's just got profound insights to share on people and place. And he's fabulous. He's really, he carries the story really, really beautifully. And it's a, a very intimate portrayal of his life, actually. Now, when you mention his life, you know, the holdings in and around County Clare and in and around the Burn, um, are quite small, must be quite small. So you're looking at something that's very labour-intensive because I know also in that area it would be difficult, even if you wanted to, to do any kind of mass farming with machinery. So as I say, it would be a very labour-intensive operation. That's right. I, I don't believe that any of the farmers that farm in the burn are doing it for money, to be honest, often. Um, but, I mean, Patrick's story is... You know, at 14 he left school. He he couldn't he couldn't stand that system, and he left school and he made a promise to himself, like to be to be true to the land and to work the land and to be true to the ancestors and the people who actually sweated and toiled and worked that land previous to him. So he took over his small parcel of land, and you know he maintains the walls and he has cattle in the winterages and they are calving cows and lambing. <laughs> They've got lambs up in the mountains and it's up there right in the heart of, of the mountain in the winter where it's blowing gales and hail and everything else. But it's um it's a feat just to farm there and to grow things. He grows his own garden then in the springtime and yeah, it's difficult. It's very labour intensive. But I think when you farm that close to nature, I think it, it teaches you an awful lot and that is brought out throughout the documentary. That's one of the key themes of the documentary is actually being close to nature and farming close to nature and what you can learn from it. So Katrina, you say Patrick had made a promise when he was young about uh, to the land and to himself how he would um, look after the land, but he also had a commitment to others. That's right, Austin. So he's a, a very deep, a very, very deep character. So he's he's made this promise to be true to the land and he's um, he judges himself, I suppose, against the older community. You know, he always wants to be as true to the land as they were. And also when his children comes along, he promises the children from the depths of his heart that they would have a great time on those hills and that he would preserve these hills. But what it gives us is um, actually looking through the eyes of the kids, because there's lots and lots of scenes with children. We see the children growing things. We see them sowing. We see them caring for livestock and for kid goats and lambs and calves and stuff. So we actually get to see the wonder of nature through the eyes of the children. And we also get to see and experience the older generation, how they they talk to their livestock, they talk to the cows like as if they're their own children. So this, it gives us this opportunity to really portray what it's like to be immersed in nature. Has he been able to deliver on that from when he would have been, from when he started farming? Has it been, despite the struggle that would be associated with just working the land, he has been able to fulfil some of those dreams? <laughs> Not easy, Austin. He's... Um, He's had the most divisive battle that you could possibly imagine. It was a 13-year-long battle which he had to go through with the High Court where he had to mortgage his own home um, to pay for the cost, where he had to take a battle against the government 
to prevent the government from building an interpretive centre at Mullachmore, right at the heart of the mountain. And he wanted that interpretive centre to be built in a town where there were facilities, infrastructure, roads and so forth. So, as I said, it was a very, very divisive battle because a lot of people could see this interpretive centre as a means for income so that their children could stay living around this area and actually be able to provide jobs for the kids. So the interpretive centre would have provided jobs for the children. So some of the community wanted it, but in Patrick's eyes, it was really just going to turn the whole mountain into a tourist mecca. Hundreds of thousands of tourists coming and tramping through the wilderness. It wasn't how he envisaged how we should treat the landscape. And should I take it that um, Patrick was successful? Yes, he was. Yeah, he was. They came at a cost. They broke friendships, and <laughs> uh, as you can imagine. But yeah, it was successful. It's still actually, you know, it's still ongoing. Um, they're still trying to put car parks and other facilities there in that area because it's government area. But it's still ongoing. But I don't think there'll be an interpretive centre there anytime soon. And just as a side to it, has the interpretive centre been put in in any of the towns in the area? That's right. There is an interpretive centre in. Kilfenora and in Currapin, so they're the two neighbouring towns. Yeah, and there's a park and ride facility, so you can go to the interpreter centre at the village, park and ride up to the mountain. Okay, so uh, one would say uh, there has been some degree of compromise. That's right. That's right. I think while the current battle may have been um, successful, there's it's going to be an ongoing because of the changing face of tourism and how people want to be able to literally drive to the door of where they want to go, walk a few yards and get back in the car, which is the whole concept of what the burren and that area is about, is totally lost if that's what you do. Absolutely awesome. You know, really, I think I see a lot of tour guides and I often say if I were to take a tour guide, if I were to take a tour to the burren, I would bring them and leave people sitting in in random places for about an hour or two hours and don't feed them any information, just leave them sit there for two hours and then they could experience it, you know. There's, it's such a wonderful place just to be on your own and, um, you know, the, there's wildlife, but not just the wildlife. You'll actually see all of the tombs and all the echoes of the ancestors all around you, but you just need to be still. And I think that's one of the things that we try to take across in the film is um is how you know how nature can help us really how being in touch and how to reconnect with nature how that can actually help us to live better and more more wholesome life. So you mentioned earlier on that just what started out was that there was nobody that was covering deep sea or deep water filming and that that was your introduction and that out of that you've actually come out of the water you've you've a bit like the uh, evolution you've you've evolved onto land um, yeah yeah I don't, I don't know whether it would that would be a natural evolution so where do you go from here more wildlife i think really surely it's it's wildlife that gets us mostly and our connection with wildlife so we've got um we've got some great plans but at the moment we're um, we've got a TV series coming out on the 22nd of April, which is the Deep Atlantic, which is the whales, dolphins and sharks all around Ireland. And, of course, there is no scarcity of beautiful locations all around the country that must present tremendous opportunities um, when you kind of scratch the surface to see what's underneath um, for documentary material. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's... 
it's a landscape that hasn't really, like, on the face of it, it's been explored. It's not been explored very deeply. So switching gears, now you've um, spent years in the financial sector. You go back to Ireland and you um, really make a career change that is radical. Um, and yes, in order to f- bring that radical career change to fruition, there's a business side to all this. And getting a concept from uh, the brain to the uh, camera through the editing room and onto the screen and then to distributors is a long and expensive path that you've had to learn and work through. That's right, Austin. And <laughs> I don't think it's for the same party, but then as people say, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. It's a fantastic life and we love it, but it's a very difficult road and getting funding is always the most difficult, to be honest. I mean, we love doing what we're doing, but you can't give up. I think that's the key. You know, Austin used to go and you get turned down and no just means nothing. When you hear no, it just means that you have to try harder. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a difficult process. Without a doubt, but it's worth it, and we love it. We're we're very driven. Now, I, I noticed that you've had your work in numerous festivals around the world, and um, we're going to talk about Hot Docs, which you're going to be screened at on the first, third, and sixth of May in Toronto. Um, so, trying to get your work into the festival circuit, I think, is that an important part of what you need to do? Uh, I hope so. Well. So the film is, is, you know, you're crawling around and trying to film butterflies and falcons and wild goats and so forth. It's very hard at that time to imagine the end process, but there's nothing more fulfilling than actually have an audience sit down and relax and enjoy the end product, which is, I'd say, 10% of the footage, actually, or even less, probably 5% of what you shoot ends up on the screen. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful experience to have people... Uh, view the end product and to enjoy it. Getting into festivals can be tricky. There's um, so many fantastic films out there. So we're very, very honoured to be over in Hot Doc. Fantastic opportunity and I really hope that we get um, a great screen in there and people get to enjoy the Silver Branch. Mentioning again Hot Docs and as I say, it's the 1st, the 3rd and the 6th of May are the three days that you're screening. Um, You will be on site some of the time? Absolutely. Wouldn't miss it. I'm, I have never been, and we're looking at our calendars, and we're hoping that we might be actually able to get in uh, and take in a full weekend and get in uh, all the Irish contributions. Uh, that's our goal at the moment. But after um, at the screenings of these, will you be participating in any Q and As? And I'm sure there are other are there other interactive um, sessions going on that you get to participate in with the public. Well, I sure be there, Austin, and if anybody has any cues, any questions, I'd be delighted to answer them. I'm not sure, actually. I haven't looked at the program to see if there's Q&As after the screening, but quite possibly. Now, the other important thing we have to make sure not to forget to do is that if anybody wants to learn more about you, I'm sure you, you have your website, you have uh, Facebook. So do you want to give us the, the housekeeping details? Okay, great. So our website is cfeverproductions.com. That's S-E-A-F-E-V-E-R productions.com. And the Facebook page where you can find out where, where we'll be having our screening is at Sea Fever Film. 
that's the Facebook details at CP for film. Gina Castlow, I want to thank you very much indeed for taking the time. It's been an honour chatting with you. And, you know, all these kind of things, um, you get envious when you see, or you, you, you uh, there's a saying I often use, it's like, don't compare yourself to the best in others. And, you know, when you put your film up on screen, what we're seeing, as you say, is the 5%. We're not seeing the 95%. And what you do is you, you inspire in us to say, oh, I wish I could do what they do. <laughs> but we only want to do the 5%. <laughs> um, so I want to say thanks for the 95% that doesn't make it, that allows us to enjoy the 5%. Well, thank you very much, Aston.